0: There is a deep sense of unease in our rapidly changing world. We all know something has been lost, but we don't know why or where it all leads. Popular culture tells us it is all about me and that we should worship our creations rather than the creator. In politics, the end justifies the means. In relationships, love means self-satisfaction. In life, status and appearance are what count. In the Church, confusion replaces clarity and conviction. Our faulty and distorted view of God is at the root of all our problems within and without. But what if we viewed God differently? What if we saw Him the way He longed for us to see Him? Instead of worshipping a comfortable golden calf of our own creation, we can worship a God that is holy, wise, and just. One whose faithfulness and goodness are matched by His power and sovereignty over all things. This is a God that can deliver us from evil and transform lives. This is a God worth worshipping. The way back, the path of hope, starts with knowing God for who He really is. We need to know the real God.
1: and then I'll start over. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to pretend that you were there. I want you to pretend that you were part of the group of Israelites that um, had heard rumor of the living God. For 400 years, he's been talked about, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob the God that led the Israelites miraculously through the, through, through the reality of, of Joseph being sold into slavery and rising to power under Pharaoh and navigating famine. We read about that in Genesis and, and all of the family coming then and, and just a, a smaller clan to now 400 years later when we get to the beginning of Exodus, they've flourished several million of them. I want you to imagine that you're part of that group and you've heard about this God. And you've heard that he loves you, and you've heard that he's real, and you've heard the stories about how he's done things for your ancestors. But you're in slavery. You've never met him. But then one day, God comes, and he ministers, uh, and he teaches, and he admonishes Moses. Moses. And then Moses, at God's instruction, goes and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go, and there's ten plagues and signs and miraculous things that happen. We read about that in Exodus, and, and in a fit of, of just wrath and judgment upon the Egyptian people for enslaving the Israelites, God loosens the grip. And Pharaoh says, go. So the Israelites leave in Exodus, mass Exodus. Pharaoh's heart is hard, though, and he chases after you. And you see God part the Red Sea. It's ridiculous. And you walk through on dry land, miles. With walls of water on each side. You walk through on dry land. And then you get there to the other side. And you see the water come crashing down over the pursuing Egyptian armies. Devastating them completely. And then we get to Exodus chapter 19. 60 days later. And you've wandered in the desert. Um... You've, you've made your way to Mount Sinai. The newness has worn off a little bit. There's manna in the morning. Hey, how cool is that? But the newness of that even has worn off a little bit, and, and it's starting to get anxious. What's going to happen next? What's this God really like? What are we doing here? And you get to the mountain, and, and then you get word as you set up camp that in three days, God is going to meet with you people are told to consecrate themselves. Get ready. That's what consecrate means. When you read consecrate in scripture, it means get ready. People are told to consecrate themselves. They they refrain from sexual relations. Um, They they refrain from eating anything unclean. They they wash themselves. They wash their clothes in a ceremonial way. They get ready. Um, There's a fence around the mountain. In fact, we see just just a little um, goofy rendering of that here, right? There's a fence around around the mountain, you're told you can't even get close to the foot of the mountain because if you get close to the foot of the mountain, that, that you will die because God is on that mountain. And the morning of the third day, you hear it. There's, there's a trumpet blast, and it's beautiful, and it's frightening. And, and, and as you start to move closer to the mountain, where you're supposed to meet with God now, it gets faster faster and louder, and faster, and louder, and what was beautiful for a second has turned terrifying, but people can't stop, they, they just, they come to the foot of the mountain, and then smoke billows out of the mountain, for no reason at all, smoke billows out of the mountain, and fire, and thunder, and we're told in Exodus 19 that the entire mountain shakes, so that the whole world that they're in right now at the base of the mountain is trembling, and God speaks, And they hit the ground. They are undone. In fact, they're undone to the point where they ask Moses, Moses, we don't want to talk to him anymore. I mean, they they literally tell Moses, Moses, you talk to God, then you talk to us. We'll listen to you knowing that those are God's words. God says that's right for them to, to be afraid. Why? Because God is that holy. So I want you to imagine if you were there, if you were those people, I want you to imagine what your view of the might and the power and the holiness of God would be in that moment. I wonder how that might impact you when there's a moment of, "Do I choose obedience?" or do I not?" I wonder how that might impact you when it, when it comes down to this idea of, do I, do I follow after God or do I take my chances somewhere else? But God's holiness in that moment has never been more real. They've heard about him. They've pictured him. They've been told stories. But in this moment, they experience the fullness of of the holiness of God, and it is ridiculously incredible, and, and what we think about God, it follows the thesis of, of our whole series here, what we think about God is so critically important, even his holiness, uh, especially his holiness, because what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you, it just is, okay, and when it comes to his holiness, Tozer says it this way, he says, when it comes to God's holiness, we have no idea, said, you know what, we're in awe of his power, we're maybe a little bit jealous of his wisdom and his might, but when it comes to his holiness, we have zero idea because we can't experience anything like the holiness of God. Because holiness, by definition, is something that says that God is of a separate category than the rest of us. Holiness means set apart, different than everything else. And we, we can't understand on our own the holiness of God. Chip Ingram talks about it like this. Uh, when you talk about God's holiness, he says it's like a storm. And we know about storms here in Vinton, I would think, um, as much as, as a lot of people in the world do. But talks about it like this, this thing of a storm. And you, you've been in a storm, right? And when the storm is happening, you know you're supposed to go down to your basement. If you live with my wife, you can ask her. She's downstairs with kiddos this morning, but you can ask her. When, when there's a storm, we go downstairs. That's all we do to it. And when I say we go downstairs, I mean everybody in the family except for me. Because I like to see it. I like to look at it. Come on, be honest. How many of you like to look at the storm? You know it's dangerous. You know it's not safe. It's like the holiness of God. It's terrible and awful and all-consuming. But there's something so majestically beautiful about it that we can't help but stare. But we got to figure this out. And we have to figure out the holiness of God because it's so critically important in understanding God's character and what he desires and requires of his people. See, we read through Scripture, and, and, and actually we talk about this, that, that all of this really is centered around the holiness of God. Ever since the beginning, it's centered around the holiness of God and what it means to, to follow and worship a holy God. The Ten Commandments are a picture of the holy God. The first four commandments are all about how we relate to a holy God. I am the Lord your God. You have no other gods before me. Second, idols. You keep idols away from you because they are a cheap facsimile. They're a false thing that, that kind of looks like me, but it's not holy like me. You keep it away from me. And we, and we read about these, these commandments that tell us how to follow God's holiness. And then the next six commandments tell us how In light of his holiness, to navigate relationships with each other, it's of critical importance. And he sets up the tabernacle and he sets up the temple where his holiness, where his, his glory, where he resides physically, or I'm sorry, spiritually with his people. And then he sends the prophets. The prophets who are always, constantly, when you read through the Old Testaments, the major minor prophets, they are always telling people that they serve and follow a holy God. Get rid of your idols. Get rid of your falseness. Follow the God of the universe because he's holy. And that is a prophet's job. It's the church's job today, serving the same function. You know what we do? The church's job, it's the same as, as a prophet's job in the Old Testament. By and large, it's to afflict the comfortable and call them back to God. And to give comfort to the afflicted. And that's what this is all about. It's all about God's holiness. In fact, even get this his judgment and anger. And yes, God gets angry. God gets angry at sin. Like, mean, that's gonna rub some of you the wrong way, but God gets angry at sin. Why? God gets angry at sin because it's something that hurts the people he loves. God hates sin because it hurts you and God loves you. But his anger and his, his judgment that happens, man, that is tied to his love and his holiness. That God is holy and he is good and he wants good for you. And so when judgment and anger come, you know, have you ever wondered that, that maybe sometimes the hardest times in your life where things seem to be falling apart around you where nothing works the way it's supposed to work, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the fact that your life is is a mess and is falling apart, man, that very possibly could be an expression of the love of God in your life. Loving you to the point of hating the sin in your life and being angry at the sin in your life and judging the sin in your life because God knows Next week, we deal with God's wisdom, and we'll really we'll tie this together then, but, but listen to me. God's holiness matters, and God demonstrates his holiness all through Scripture, and so we're going to look at just one of those times today here real quick in, in Isaiah chapter 6, but it happened with Moses at the bush. It happened there at the mountain uh, where God expresses his holiness, and, and here's a perfect example. It happens in Isaiah 6. Uh, we're going to look at the first eight verses of this, but, but we'll break it apart for you. Okay, and it starts in, uh, in verses 1 through 4 here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, by the way, a lot of times when God demonstrates, when, when God manifests his, his holiness to people, it's in times of crisis. You know why? It's because of that. It's because of the crisis that, that finally we get to a point where we're willing to look at God where we're willing to say, what's happening in my life? And God then demonstrates his holiness and a call to repent and follow him. And anyway, here's what's happening. Um, Crisis, okay? Uzziah was a good, godly king, okay? But in the year that King Uzziah died, the nation of Judah is in turmoil. Things are falling apart. It's not going well. There's pressure from... um, uh, a sacrilegious northern kingdom. Israel is pushing down on uh, the kingdom of Judah, and, and now that the king who held steadfast has died, the whole nation is starting to slip into turmoil, and it's then that God demonstrates his holiness here with, with the prophet Isaiah. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, by the way, You get cherubim and seraphim, and we think about those. You get those little figurines. How many of you got the figurines in your house? They don't look like that. Cue in here, right? Um, Here's what he says. Each of them with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of... Of his glory, and at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So this is now this is Isaiah with this picture of the holiness of God. Right? This is this is one of those things that is this physically happening? No. Like Isaiah didn't walk into the temple and like, oh, hey, look, God's here today with the seraphim, and they're flying, and they're covered, and they're holy, 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 and the whole place. No, what's happened is God is allowing Isaiah a glimpse of what's happening in the heavenly realm. Okay, it's the same thing we, we get the picture of uh, Paul talks about, that he was caught up to the heavenly realm. And when we read the book of Revelation, we know that that is, that is God's revelation spiritually to John. Okay, it's this picture of what's happening, and this is what's going on here. And so we get this idea that, that Isaiah is caught up in this vision of God seated on the throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and, and, and the flying angels around and... and, and they're, they're singing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, and, and smoke fills the temple, and the whole place shakes, and everything right now is about the glory of God. And it's a big deal. And we think, wow, that would be so great. It would be so great to see something like that. It would be so awesome to get just that taste, that glimpse of God's glory and holiness. Sometimes I hear this from people, they're like, well, I would believe if I could just see, right? If I could just experience it, then I would have no trouble believing that all of this is true, but I'm not sure you know what you're asking for. Because look what Isaiah says in 6.5. He sees the glory and the holiness of the living God seated on the throne, trained, fills the temple, ministered to by the seraphim, and, and They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty to the point where the entire foundation of the temple shakes and is filled with smoke. And Isaiah sees this and he's not in awe of how great God is right now. He is terrified. He is petrified. He is undone. Because he knows who he is. And it's this moment this moment right here, that Isaiah knows that he is worthless. And Isaiah was a good dude. Before this moment, like this is, this is happening in Isaiah 6. This is when King, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord before this moment. But we get here to this moment, and we see all of this glory and holiness of God, and Isaiah melts. I am undone, I am ruined, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. So so get this, he says, not only, like he's got problems, you know, just coming out of his ears, score one for my filter, coming out of his ears, because I'm a man of unclean lips, because I am bad. That's what he says. Woe to me, because I am looking at this holy, righteous God, and I am bad. I am a man of unclean lips. I have said things. I have done things. You know, I might be good compared to everybody else, but not compared to you. Not compared to you, God. And I am seeing you high and seated on the throne. And the train of your robe fills the temple. And the angels are ministering to you. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And smoke and the temple shakes. And I might have been a good guy compared to the other guys in my life. But compared to you, I am a man of unclean lips. And it's worse than that. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. And so what, what Isaiah is saying here? is he's going to die. Isaiah's fear is that he's going to die. It's why the people were not allowed to approach the mountain. Way back, remember we talked about that in Exodus 19, there were, there were barriers around the mountain, you were not allowed to approach the mountain. Why? Because the holiness of God was there. And you weren't allowed to look at God. Moses, Moses wanted to see God, and what did God say to Moses? Exodus uh, 21, I think. What does God say to Moses go hide in the cleft, and I'll let you look at my backside. He says, my glory will pass over the mountain, and you can look at me from behind, because you can't look at me and live. And so Isaiah, Isaiah knows he's undone. But this is what we do, right? We, we, we act like God grades on a curve. We act like God grades on a curve. See, Isaiah sees God. He, he, thinks, he thinks he's doing pretty well, right? He, he's a prophet. He speaks for God. He's in good shape. And then he sees God, and he's like, well, I'm undone, right? And we all do that. We, we kind of act like God grades on this curve. Like, we, we judge ourselves not based on this holy standard of God, which, by the way, is, is unattainable. It's unapproachable light. It's glory. It's perfection that we can't attain. And we act like, you know what? not have to worry about this standard. You know what I have to worry about? I have to worry about your standard. I mean, I know some of you. And compared to some of you, I am in good shape. And some of you are like, I know Matt. Compared to Matt, I'm in really good shape. This is how we do, right? We, we have this conversation with each other. You know, we're like, we're like, we grade based on one another. You're like, man, if that guy's my pastor, then I am living it right. And so we, we, we judge that way. And it's this cultural thing that we do where we think that, you know what, yeah, we all make mistakes, but by and large, we're all good people. We make mistakes, we struggle, but by and large, we're all good. And I have bad news for you. And, and nobody outside the church People hate to hear this. Inside the church, we don't like it much more. Remember, we, we've had some, some serious, going back to small groups several years ago, we've had some serious discussions about this and um, where, where tensions rose and, and things got heated. But it's over this issue of, aren't people inherently just good? I mean, yeah, we know there's a few people that are just evil. But by and large, aren't people just basically good enough? And yeah, we try, and we want to be better than we were yesterday, and we want to be better than most people, and we want to, we want to grow. And, but aren't we just basically good enough? Listen to me. No. We're not. And the reason for that, that's not me just being hard to get along with. The reason for that is because you don't get to define good. There's a standard of good that is unattainable and unapproachable by any of us. See, when I say something, oh, that was really good, I'm using my understanding of good, but I don't get to set the value of good. The value of good is set by the holiness of God. And there is no one that's holy. There's no one that's good. You know what that's like? That's like saying that my dog is smart. I had a therapy dog. I don't know if I ever tell you guys this, probably. Um, Paxton. Her name was Axe, but we're taking her to a school We're like, ax, that seems weird. So we had to keep the sound because she was 18 months old when we got her. You know, we went, I mean, I was in Concordia, Kansas with a first grade teacher. We went to get trained. This was going to be our school therapy dog, public access service dog. Uh, PTA paid for it. We brought it to the school, lived with, with Chris, first grade teacher. I had it with me all day, every day. Good times, right? Best trained dog ever. That was a smart dog. That dog would walk into a room. I would be teaching a classroom and that dog would find the kid that needed to have the dog. And that dog would go sit by that kid. We'd have have, uh, group therapy in in my office. I was a counselor. So we'd have group therapy in my office. and, And I'd have kids melting down. And that dog knew exactly how to respond, when to respond. It was great. That was a smart dog. When compared with other dogs, like, look, Charlie's okay. But compared to Charlie, Paxton was a cut above the rest, was still a dog. Right? Compared to you and I, Paxton was still a dog. But that's kind of what we do. You know, we we do that. It's like, of course, well, that makes perfect sense. We get that, that Paxton is a very smart dog, not ever going to be a smart person right? There's, there's just not things Paxton's going to be able to do that all of us people can do, okay? Well, this is the way it is with us in good, right? We say, well, we're good compared to each other, compared to this other standard that doesn't really matter because God sets the standard and the standard for goodness is holiness and it's right here and it's unattainable. And that is a terribly awful message to, um, to have to share with people in the world that we live in today, but it's so right and so true. And until we grasp that, then we can't really understand the holiness of God and all that it requires. Because what what happens is I look around at everybody else, and I think, yeah, 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 I know God's standard in Scripture, but but I'm better than most people. Or I'm at least on par with most people, and so it must be okay. The problem is this. When you meet the holy God of Scripture, you're going to find something out. And that is simply that he does not grade on the curve. Frankly, he's not going to care how good you thought you did on your own personal grading scale. When you meet the God of Scripture, he has one grading standard. And it is total, absolute, Holiness. Perfection. And I might think I'm a pretty good dude. But look what Isaiah says. I wouldn't be bold enough to say that I'm better than Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says. Woe to me. Because I am ruined. Because I am a dirty Filthy man of unclean lips. And I live among a dirty, filthy people of unclean lips. And I have seen the king, and it is grading time. And I am woefully inadequate. And God doesn't grade on a curve. And so the thing that we have to understand about God's holiness is simply this without help, there's no hope without help, there's no hope. But look at this great thing that happens for Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. This is Isaiah talking again. One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which live means on fire, right? Um, it wasn't like living. I mean, so for those of you that don't know much about fire, live just means it's, it's, it's burning, right? So, I mean, this is a big deal. He goes and he takes it, a live coal in his hand, okay? And he, and he um, had taken with the tongs from the altar, and, and with it he took, and he touched my mouth. And he said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And this is this great picturing. This is this covering. Now, that, that happens, it's actually, we're going to read this in just a minute, it's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of what Jesus offers us. It's this covering for our sin. God says, I am holy, and I do not grade on a curve. I demand holiness. Isaiah, who's a pretty good guy, says, whoa, I'm in trouble then, because I'm nowhere close to holy. And, And the angel says, it's okay, because at God's direction, I've got you covered. And he takes this symbolic coal, this hot, live coal, and he touches it. Not like a, like a mean, like, oh, I'm going to burn your face, and you've paid penance now. See, some people would read that, and they would say, oh, okay, well, that's, that's God taking punishment from you, hurting you, so that now you'll be okay. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. This doesn't hurt Isaiah. This doesn't hurt him. This isn't God punishing him. This is God covering him. This is God offering atonement for him. Atonement means that your sins are covered. doesn't mean you didn't sin. It doesn't mean you're not messy. It doesn't mean you're not broken. What it means is, I, through this act, am covering your sin. I'm paying for it. And he takes the coal and he touches his lips and he says, See, now your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And that is a picture of what you and I are offered. And then we see this last thing here. I love this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. Terribly profound, life altering, scary words. wonder this is a side note we'll just put a pin in this talk about holiness we'll come back to it but i'm curious when it comes to this have any of you ever said that to god i mean you'll notice that the description the job description is pretty light whom shall i send send where for what purpose what's the duration how much will i get paid what is this all about what are the benefits right i mean does it come with dental right? What, what, what's going on here? Like, what, like, what's all at play with this? But no, 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 God just says, who shall I send? And what's Isaiah say? He says, here, me, man, right here, pick me, pick me, pick me. Mr. Cotta. Welcome back, Cotter. Like, some of you are like, yeah, that's awesome. And some of you are like, what? YouTube it. Send me. See, you know what's so great about this? By the way, that's a, that's a terribly awesome, awful, scary thing all at once. But, I, man, you haven't lived until you've told the living God, hey, I'll go, send me, use me. You haven't truly lived until you've told God, I will do whatever you want me to do. See, I can say that with certainty because that's what you were designed for. I read Ephesians 2.10, it says you were, you were created new in Christ Jesus. Why? To do the good works that God laid out for you a long time ago. And so until you've said, okay, God, here I am. Send me. You aren't living your purpose. It's a wholly inadequate place to be. If you're like, man, life doesn't, uh, life doesn't get me like it used to. Life doesn't excite me the way it used to. Try this. Hey, God, the answer is yes. Now tell me the question. Anyway, the great thing about this is that when you see God's holiness, when you really experience God's holiness, it does this realigning in you. It changes you. It takes the things that you used to take for granted, and it helps you understand what God requires. So anybody here, listen, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm not picking on anybody. I don't, but anybody here that's harboring active sin in your life, Anybody here that's harboring something active in your life, you know what you need? You need this moment. You need this moment where you come face to face with God's holiness because it realigns you. Because in light of God's holiness, there is nothing worth staying separate from the God of the universe, nothing. And it realigns you to the point where you say, okay, God, yeah, send me, I'm good. Whatever it takes, whatever you want, I will do it. If you're harboring sin in your life, if you're, if you're, if you're playing with sin, or we, we talked about this at small groups, something I said a, a while ago, if you're making friends with your sin, you, you, need, you need a moment with the holiness of God. Because it realigns you, changes things. But we're called to live a life of holiness. And the reason that we're called to do that is, as Christians, it's bigger than what you think. The reason you're called to live a life of holiness as a Christian, okay, is not just because, yes, God's standard is here, yes, that's true, yes, you have to answer to God, yes, all of that. All of that's true. But but it's bigger than that. Read this, okay? Run from sexual sin. I'm not here to harp on sexual sin today. Let's, let's, uh, we've talked about that enough. I mean, I, you, let's just focus on this for a second. Run from sexual sin. No other son, sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. All right, I'm going to harp on it a little bit. I changed my mind mid-sentence. Listen to me. You all, some of you are like, well, why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a, such a big deal if I engage in pornography? Why is it such a big deal if I'm in a... Um, monogamous sexual relationship, even though we're not married. Why is it such a big deal if um, we, I, whatever, you fill in the blank. Why is it such a big deal if I'm involved in it? Why, why, why do you care? Well, like, listen, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Well, why does that matter? Because don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? You don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So here's what I want you to feel, or here's what I want you to understand about this. All through the Old Testament, God manifested his holiness, his glory, his presence in certain spots. The burning bush, that was God's, that became holy ground. It wasn't holy a minute ago. All of a sudden, God's presence is there, and he says, hey, take off your shoes. This place is now holy because this is now where my presence is. This is where my glory is. This is my holiness right here. Take off your shoes and get on your knees. And then later it's around the mountain. Consecrate yourselves. Don't even get close to the mountain until you're clean. And then you still have to keep a safe distance. And God speaks and the people hit the floor because his holiness is here. His glory is here. His presence is here. And then he instructs them to build this tabernacle. Okay? This portable worship center that we read about in the Old Testament that that, that the Israelites built. Why? Because that's where God's presence was going to dwell. And when anybody wanted to worship God, they had to go to the tabernacle. But it was portable, and we get to this part where David says, you know what, God, I shouldn't have a palace. Well, you have a tent, so I want to build you something. And and, and, and God doesn't necessarily allow David to do it, but his son Solomon. And they build this grand temple in the capital of Jerusalem, which now has become the, the, the political capital, but also the spiritual capital. Um, and, and anybody that wants to worship how many times a year, you know, you got every time there's Passover, every time there's, there's Pentecost, we've got to come to the temple. We've got to come here to worship God, where his presence is, where he is. And then now, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when you say, I am following God, I accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross I know I'm a sinner, I repent, I turn from my sin, I'm following Jesus, I'm I'm trusting God, I'm part of the family, I'm part of the kingdom. When that happens, the word tells us that now the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are where God's glory resides. Not in a temple, not in the tabernacle, not at the foot of the mountain, not in the burning bush, you. I want you to track that with me. Wherever you go as a Christian, the manifest presence of God, as long as you're being obedient and you're walking in holiness, it goes with you. People no longer have to travel to the temple to experience the holiness and the glory of God. Why? Because he lives in you. And he says, that's, that's why sexual sin is such a big deal. That's why walking in holiness is such a big deal because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And you take God with you wherever you go. You go to work tomorrow, guess what? That place is now holy because you were there. You go to school tomorrow, well, guess what? Homeroom is now holy because you are there. You teach in a school, how, mu- how better is that? If you're walking in obedience then everybody that comes in contact with you is experiencing in some way the holiness of God because you're there. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than you. God manifests his presence and power in you as you walk in holiness. Some of you are like, man, I don't experience it. I don't feel it. I don't get it. You're like, man where is the peace that passes understanding? God, in his word in here, he promises that that there will be peace that passes understanding. Yeah, you know why you're not experiencing that? Because you're not walking in holiness. You're like, yeah, okay, but, but where is the power of God in my life to overcome addiction? Yeah, yeah. Hey, I got an idea. Try walking in holiness. Because God promises that when you walk in holiness, that the power of the Holy Spirit it lives in you, and it empowers you, and it moves you. But see, here's what we do. We, we take holiness in this day and age, we take holiness for granted. I mean, we, we act like we judge God, right? We, we read through this thing, and we're like, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. Ooh, time out. This part's old-fashioned. Let's rip that out, Okay. Or let me get our exacto knives and we start cutting out parts that we don't like. And then we say things like this. My God is so loving that he would never and I fill in the blank. Yeah, I know what God says about forgiveness but I don't want to, I'm not going to and my God is so loving that he would never I know what God says about sexual purity, but my God is so loving, he just wants me to be happy, right? I, I, you know, I mean, I, I know what he says about, about having um, extramarital affairs, but, but that girl and I are in love, and God would want me to be happy, and my God is so loving that he would never. I mean, I know what God says about pornography, I know what he says about pornography, but, but here's the thing. It's just, it, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's just me, right? It only affects me, and my God is so loving that he would never. And we just, we fill in the blank with whatever it is. Because we negate the holiness of God, but we are a temple of the living God, and we are priceless. I mean, get that as a Christian? Like, how many of you have ever used the word priceless to describe something that had a very clear price? Like, oh, that's priceless. You can have it for $200. Right? Like, like, you know, you'd ask Carrie, like, oh, this is priceless. <laughs> if somebody were going to give you 50 bucks for it, you'd take it. Because really, you know what that is? That's something the kids scribbled on when they were four. Well, let's be honest. You are priceless. As a Christian, as someone who's following Jesus... You know what that told us in 1 Corinthians 6? You have been bought and paid for. You know what you cost? The shed blood of the living God. That's what you cost. Priceless. And we're called to walk in holiness because it matters. So a couple of big questions that we'll hit quick. If God is so holy that sinful people can't even look at him, then how can sinful people have a relationship with him? It's a question I get a lot. We talk about holiness. That's why I hope nobody leaves halfway through a sermon like this because they're like, well, it's hopeless. I'm out of here. Like, it didn't work for Isaiah. It can't work for me. I'm gone. Okay? But here's the thing. It's like, if God is so holy that sinful people can't can't even look at him, then how can sinful people have a relationship with him? Look, you know how that happens? It is all about the blood of Jesus Christ. I want you to look. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up uh, to Romans 5. I'm going to read you verses 6 through 10, okay? And this is how it works. You want to know how does it work? How does it work? How does it work? I don't have any seraphim coming and touching me with a hot coal. How does it work? How am I atoned for? This is it. Listen to this, Romans 5, 6 through 10. It says, when we were utterly, utterly helpless... Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone, you know, Paul gives concession, someone might be willing to die for a good person. Okay? But, for someone who's especially good, he says it that way, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. And I'll finish the thought in 11. He says, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. See, the idea here is is, is simple. The idea is that you're going to be okay If you're in Christ, God's holiness is here. My best is down here, but I'm going to be all right if I trust and follow Jesus. Following Jesus, though, means that I stop going my own way and I start going his. That's the idea of the word repentance. Repentance means not that I go to church Not that I I give an offering, not that I've gone through the ordinances or sacraments or whatever we call them, not those things. You know what repentance means? Repentance means that I stop going my own way, and I turn and I follow Jesus. And the reason I can do that is because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And how much more then won't he save me? See, this is this grand thing. What's happened? Okay, this, oh, it's this great thing that happens on the cross, my sin, and there's a lot of it, past, present, future, my sin was charged to Christ's account as he hung on the cross when I follow him. And that's only half the exchange. His righteousness, his rightness was charged to mine. So when God sees me, what he sees is a holy dwelling place. He sees me as a holy dwelling place so the Holy Spirit can live in me and guide me and empower me. Why? Not because I'm good and because I am right, but because Jesus is, and we swapped accounts. Think about it. Is there anybody that you would like to swap bank accounts with? I'm making grand assumptions. I mean, I might be surprised to swap bank accounts with Bill Gates and find out that the guy's leveraged to the hilt. I don't know. But I'd be willing to risk it. Right? Swap bank accounts. Well, this is what happens. More or less, I take his righteousness, he gets my sin. It's the trade of the century. Trade of eternity. That's how it works. That's how sinful people get to have a relationship with the holy, unattainable God of the universe. It's only that way. Listen, if you're here this morning and and you haven't made that exchange, it's all on you. It's all on you. It's a matter of you saying, you know what, God, I know I'm going the wrong way. I know that I can't do it on my own. I know that my life is broken. I know that maybe next to the person next door, I'm good, but next to you, I'm like Isaiah, I'm ruined. I need Jesus. and asking God for Jesus, and thanking Jesus, and following Jesus. If you're not sure if that's you, then there's no time like now. And and there's no magic to it. You've been coming to church your whole life, and maybe you've never said, you know what, Jesus, I need you to take my sins, and I need your righteousness, and I need to follow you. Maybe you've always thought this was enough, just being here. Uh, wherever you're at this morning, if that's you, there, there is no time like now. There's no magic to it. It's making a decision that says, "Jesus, I want you. I'm following you." The second question is this: Oh, by the, yeah, Chip Ingram says this, and it's it's worth noting when it comes to the holiness of God. Look what the holiness of God demands. The love of God provides. You're, it's not hopeless. Because what what the holiness of God demands, absolute, unattainable, unapproachable light, perfection, that you can't get to, the love of God provides through the person of Jesus. And the second question is this. This is where we'll wrap up here. It says, if God declares that I'm holy because of Christ, then why do I keep struggling with sin? If you're a Christian here, then I'm going to bet you still sin. Okay, And the question is, well, why? Why do I keep sinning? If God says that I'm holy, why do I keep sinning? Okay, Paul does this. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what's right, but instead, I don't do it. I do what I hate. But if I know that I'm doing what's wrong, this shows that I agree with the law's good, so I'm not the one doing it. You know, I mean, he goes into this big philosophical argument, but, but he says, basically, I know that nothing good lives in me. That's my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's like, oh, he's like, I'm going through this this midlife crisis kind of a thing because he's like, I know I want to do right. I know that I've repented. I've turned away from my sin. I want to do what's right, but I keep making the same mistake over and over again. I keep doing what I hate doing. And And then he doesn't say this, but you can picture it. He's like, I hate myself tomorrow. He's like, I know I don't want to do it, but the temptation is great and it's there and I, I give in and I hate it and I can't even look at myself in the mirror. And he has this idea, I'm stuck. And so he's like, how does that work? If you really are holy, if, if Christ's righteousness really has been given to me, then, then why do I keep messing it up? Why do I keep jacking things up? Here's what I'll tell you. I heard, this, I heard this the other day. It's a great analogy for this. We've talked about this before. Uh, there are three levels of holiness. There are three levels of right with God. Uh, and the fancy words are this. There is justification. That's the legal term. When you come to God and Christ's righteousness is given to you, you are made holy. It's a legal term. Christ's righteousness has been credited to my account. I am holy. Justification is the act of growing up in that holiness I am being justified, or I'm sorry, I'm being sanctified. That means that I struggle and I grow, but I better be further along today than I was yesterday, and New Year's is always a great time to take stock. You know, when I get to to January of 2018 and I look over the past year, did I really grow? Did I change? Did I get further along in the process? Okay, that's sanctification. It's becoming holy, more and more holy. And then there's something called glorification that will happen when you die. Or you will see God for who you are. You'll see Jesus and you'll be like Jesus. That's glorification that happens when you die. And so the analogy I heard is it's a lot like buying a house. I'm buying a house. We own our house. According to the law, we own our house. Something breaks at my house, it's on me to fix it. You get hurt at my house, it's on me to convince you not to sue me. I own it right when i signed the papers the house is mine but you and i both know i don't own my house i have to make monthly payments for my house okay and every month i make another payment it becomes more mine i own more of it and there will be a day i think 17 years from now where i will own it and it will be mine in its entirety. And so, you know, um, the example, I think it might have been Ingram, but I'm not sure. But talked about holiness this way that, that, you know, it's like the house. Like, as soon as I accept Jesus and follow Jesus, it's mine. I am holy. I become more holy. And there will be a point in time where I am completely holy. And so, don't quit fighting. It's not wrong. It's not wasted. It's not like it didn't work for you on the cross. Of course, it worked for you on the cross. God, and God didn't expect you to be perfect when he died for you, when you came to him and he said, yes, I choose you. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He knows you won't be perfect, but don't give up. Keep working. Keep moving. Keep pressing in. Keep going. And you are becoming more and more holy. And I promise you, and it might seem like a long ways away now, but in the grand scheme of eternity, it's coming faster than any of us like to think. There's a day that we will be completely holy. It's it's this journey that we're on. I ask the praise team to come up, close us out. And and as they come up and prepare, we're also gonna take this time to, to... collect our morning's offering, and I'm I'm just going to say this. You're like, well, how do I respond to this call for holiness? I'm going to tell you two things about being holy as far as how you can respond. One is, well, I guess three. One is, if you're not a Christian, I mean, your response to God's holiness is to say, you know what? I can't reach that level, and I need help, and that help comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and if that's a decision that you need to make today, Okay? I don't care how long you've been coming to this church. If that's a decision that you need to make today, you need to make it today. Because there's no, there's no other way. Okay? But if you're a Christian here and you're trying to make decisions about holiness, I'll tell you two things about holiness. One is holiness is a, it's a striving that we make. It's a commitment that we make. Hebrews 12, 14 says this. Work at living at peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Work at it. Holiness is a commitment that you make. Chase after holiness. Is it easy? No. Paul struggled with it. You and I are going to struggle with it too, I promise you. But we're called to strive for it, to work at it. Make the commitment to be holy. Holy. And the second is that holiness is not just a commitment that you make, but it's also a command. 1 Peter 1, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. The Bible tells us this, you be holy because I'm holy. It's a striving, it's a commitment that you make, and it's a command that you follow. That's why it's so serious to the church. That's why we're called, like we talked about earlier, we're called to afflict the comfortable, and call you back to God, and we're called to give comfort to the afflicted. That's the way this works. Ask our ushers to come forward. As we collect this morning's offering, I want to remind you, if you're visiting with us today, you are under no obligation to participate. This is something that those of us that call Blessed Hope home, that we do to fund the ministries of the church. If you're visiting, this is a great time. If you want to fill out that tear off card on your bulletin, toss it in there. Uh, it's a great way um, to, to share with us this morning. Okay, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father God, we just, as we come before you this morning uh, um, and, and we ask you to bless this offering that we're about to take, uh, we ask you to use it uh, to, to bring inroads into the community. God, so that, so that we can be about the work of advancing your kingdom and sharing the gospel with people that need to know it. Father, we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for the fact that you love us and that you do good to us and that you pour into us. Father, we thank you for the fact that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for us while we were still sinners. While we were still enemies, you chose to make a way for us to be holy. And those of us that are Christians, Father, I thank you that we have been made a living temple for the manifest presence of of the living God in us that we can take you with us as we go. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for all good things. Amen.